Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. Purina knows the value of giving pets the absolute best. That's why they only use trustworthy ingredient sources in their pet foods, and every ingredient in their products has a purpose. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis, in for Martine Powers. It's Thursday, August 6th. Today, how negligence killed scores of people in Beirut, the weirdness of sports right now, and why a black doctor is wearing scrubs everywhere. I'm standing at my window that's no longer there. Um, there is pieces of uh, wood and uh, nails uh, sticking out of everywhere. There's a small stream of uh, cold air coming out of the air conditioner. That's that was uh, part of which was blown right off the wall. Um, uh, my apartment was. Uh, oh, I'm just babbling, Lena. I'm really sorry. Sorry. <laughs> My name is Sara Dadush, and uh, I'm a Beirut-based correspondent for The Washington Post. After explosions rocked Beirut Tuesday, Post Reports producer Lena Mohammed started gathering sound from people around the city who were living through the fallout. I first saw news of the explosion in the port from a friend's tweet, so I got up to get dressed to go to the scene. I was walking into the living room when we heard a, a, re- a re- really loud humming sound that we thought were planes. And then uh, everything shook. I saw the doors fly off their hinges. I saw my windows not just shatter, but just completely fly at me. My, uh, just everything that, that was bulky in the apartment just broke in half. It felt like we were, I was in a whirlwind of uh, glass and dust. Um, my books were flying around. And then uh, everything calmed down for a few seconds. The humming came and was, was getting louder again. And then the second blast hits. I thought it was an earthquake at first. And then my cat jumped under the bed. And then you hear shattered glass and a huge boom. And I ran out to see what happened. I ran to the front door to try to get out of the apartment, but, but I had no idea what, um, where it was safe. Instantly, the Are You Okays start flooding in. My name is Farah Berro. I live in Beirut, Lebanon. So I just instead ran into the bathroom and, and hid until uh, I knew that another blast wasn't coming anytime soon. The blast originated from Beirut's port area. The first explosion uh, seemed to have uh, ignited a fire, which led to a second explosion that then followed was followed by a mushroom cloud. The Lebanese government is, has put a bunch of Beirut uh, port officials under uh, house arrest because they're trying to figure out how 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate uh, have been stored at the port, causing the second very huge in, in explosion and effectively becoming a time bomb. We know that sound. We know what that what that means. We we've we've been through this so many times before that even when you don't know what it is, you have to you know do a head count. The Lebanese very often talk about how they're really good at rebuilding. They've, they've suffered through a lot uh, over decades. They had 15 years of civil war. 
um, and 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 a lot of wars and uh, a lot of destruction, a lot of assassination attempts. This is not the first time that you know an explosion has ripped through Beirut. How old are you, Farah? I'm 32. When we talk about uh, a place like Lebanon, um, you know, we're talking about trauma being something faced by generation after generation. I was wondering if, if that's a thing that you think about. I mean, I I can't speak for them. Uh, just seeing how they react to these things, you can tell that this isn't their first rodeo. You know, when, when the impact happened, um, my dad, who has been through the war, um, he immediately was like, okay, we have to get cardboard. We have to tape this up. We have to put this ladder here so that if this window, um, you know, snaps out of place because they've been blown out of their tracks, they're just kind of dangling um so if this falls it has a way to fall and not shatter and you know like they just had these macgyver techniques of how to to you know safe proof your your space i i don't know how reconstruction can begin after this catastrophe because there's just no money in lebanon i've kind of just been sharing whatever i'm feeling because i feel the more people um can you know, relate or empathize or kind of understand what people are feeling on the ground. It might make more sense than just seeing donation links alone, especially in the day and age where everybody needs financial help and everybody needs donations. So I want people to understand what it feels like for... Because not everyone has done this before, you know. I wrote... I keep wondering if we all died in the blast and we're now in purgatory, destined to roam, destined to forever roam in the ruins of our perpetually dying city. Nothing feels real, sirens and sounds of glass breaking. That's all you hear. You can't stop sweeping or cleaning or calling or scrolling because if you just sit with it, if you just try to think beyond the dustpan in front of you, you won't stop crying. It's just glass. We're lucky it's just glass. Have you ever swept walls? Have you ever wept for walls? Gutted. Beirut is gutted. We are gutted. It was an incredibly normal evening. I was sitting in my apartment. I heard what I am sure was the roar of warplanes. I rushed out on my balcony to take a look. And just as I looked in the sky, I didn't see any warplanes. We were hit by the most tremendous explosion. I was very lucky to have been on the balcony at that time because the whole of the plate glass window burst into the room. If I'd been sitting at my desk on the other side of it, I would have been showered with broken glass. As it was, I was blown back into the room with the glass, but I wasn't showered by it. So I feel I had a very narrow, lucky escape. Many, many people were cut by flying glass, hit by bits of doors breaking off. Everything flew everywhere. Within 15 seconds later, there was another one that seemed to be a bit bigger, but by that time, Everything had already blown out in my apartment. I'm Liz Sly and I'm the Beirut Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. Nobody really knew what was going on. 
But it quickly became clear from the videos that this was a very, very large kind of single explosion that produced two waves and that it had originated in the in the port. And as we have now subsequently discovered, it was because somebody had left 2,700 or so tons of extremely explosive ammonium nitrate sitting in storage in the port for the past six years. Why was there a massive pile of a dangerous chemical just sitting in a warehouse? Well, yes, that's what a lot of the focus of the investigations, of the journalism questions we're asking right now, and a lot of journalists are asking, it's all kind of come out that this ammonium nitrate was confiscated from a ship that had been passing through, and it had sat there despite warnings from judges and warnings from many people that it was dangerous and should be taken away or stored properly or something. And what this really raises is the bigger question of what's wrong with Lebanon at the moment. You know, Lebanon was already in a really complicated and difficult space. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the state of the country was like before this happened? I mean, as you know, there's been a lot of protests in Lebanon, which began last year against the system, calling for the overthrow of the regime. And there's an economic crisis. It's one of the biggest economic crises ever to hit any country in the world. The banking system has lost 100 billion. Lebanon's a tiny country of about 6 million people. Economists and bankers and financial experts tell me no country in the world has ever lost 100 billion from its banking sector. Um, the, the amount of, that it will take to put um, that back together again is tens of billions of dollars. Yes, the people were struggling. I mean, tens of thousands of jobs have been lost. Tens of thousands of businesses have closed. Of course, COVID didn't help. We had a long lockdown in March and April and into May, which, of course, tipped more businesses over the edge. But nobody here blames the economic crisis on COVID or the lockdowns because they all know the government and preceding governments and every government this country has had for the past 30 years is responsible for this scale of this crisis. Of course, all of this is happening in the middle of a global pandemic. How is that affecting everything that's going on in Lebanon? Over the past month, we've had rapidly rising um, COVID cases, and it had reached a critical level by Tuesday. The government was warning that the hospital system was about to be overwhelmed and there would be no more beds available for critical COVID cases. This not only, like, took away all concern about COVID because People have just not been able to cope with the idea of um, lockdown and and staying away from people in this critical situation. But also hospitals that are already stretched to the limit have been flooded with over 3,000 injured people and they don't have enough beds for those and they don't have money to buy drugs for them and they don't have equipment and they they can't cope with this new crisis as well as all the old crises. Do you feel like we're going to see a spike there after, you know, in in light of everything that's happened? Yes, I think um, we will, because there is a spike. Today was actually supposed to be the start of a five-day lockdown with complete curfew between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. So we were all braced for like a miserable weekend stuck indoors at home. And, you know, the government's just cancelled it all. I mean, people aren't actually out. There's no like socialising or not much anyway, because the city is in a state of absolute misery. But you can see from the scenes on the streets, and there's been huge mass funerals today for some of the victims. Mass funerals have been banned because of COVID. Well, everybody's thrown that out the window as well now. You know, 
Lebanon was kind of in this unique place of being between countries that are dealing with completely different types of bombings and attacks. And while being caught in some of that crosshair, it's also regarded as this exceptional example. What do you think this tells us about how mismanagement and politics also has its own unique role in how we either preserve or neglect human life? Well, this explosion is a perfect example of what happens when you have dysfunctional government and a failed state. If you have a functioning government, if you have a strong state, if you have rule of law, if you have courts that function properly and don't accept bribes, you can impose safety standards at places like courts. You can prevent this kind of thing from happening. You can make sure this material is properly stored. You can make sure it's properly disposed of. But you don't have any of that in Lebanon. Everybody suspects there was some kind of corruption around it still sitting there, people wanting to take bribes or money to take it away, or nobody being willing to put up the money to pay for it to be properly stored. And another thing that you have about Lebanon is that you do have a lot of factions, militias and Hezbollah in particular, that run operations outside the structures of the state. This explosion was almost certainly um, just a horrible, tragic accident, but it was caused by the negligence that left that explosive material sitting there waiting to blow up. You know, so much of what you're describing, not only of what happened, but of your own experience, it's one of those incredible examples of the kind of like personal constitution of journalists, right? Like we're the people who are going to run into the chaos, not away from it. It's not like it's not affecting you too. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, how are you dealing with all of this? And how are you coping and reporting at the same time? Because it cannot be easy. Well, it was very shocking and traumatizing to be in that much noise and broken glass and things falling all around you. But as the dust settles on all of this, and as I go out and about and do the reporting and speak to people, all I can think of is the enormous losses of the people who owned their properties, owned their businesses, had spent their money on them. I am a renter. I don't have to deal with all of that. It's not my property. It's not my building. It's not my business that's been knocked down. Um, Seeing the faces of the people who have literally lost everything they have These buildings are going to cost millions to repair. There isn't the money in the banks because even if people have money in the banks, even if they're quite rich, you can't get your money because it's been lost. Um, But the banks also restrict the amount you can withdraw, which has sort of masked the fact that they've lost the money. Um, But the money is not going to materialize for these people to rebuild. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking to see the expressions on their faces as they look at what they've lost and and contemplate this. Liz Sly is Beirut Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Sara Dadouche is a Beirut-based correspondent for The Post.
Watching sports games right now in a word is weird. And if I could use another word, it's barren. There are no fans. There's no atmosphere. It's the difference between an event with all the pageantry that we're used to and just an athletic competition. I'm Jerry Brewer, sports columnist for The Post. Uh, It's very striking when you see sports in this mold. Uh, It's um, entirely different from the way major athletics has been presented to us for the last 50 years. I feel like sports have traditionally been this source of, you know, joy and the kind of good distraction we all need in life, especially when things are going awry, like, uh, say, a pandemic. But basically, it seems like there have been two approaches. So sports playing in a bubble, like basketball, in a very controlled environment. And then you kind of have this non-bubble approach where, for example, baseball seems to be just not figuring out quite how to resume a season. So what are they doing and, and what's going on with them? Right now, the sports that are in a bubble, the NBA, the NHL, the the soccer associations, particularly the MLS, they have been able to create a, an environment, a sterile environment, if you will, in which they have been able to report zero cases of coronavirus for several weeks in a row. However, you you look at at baseball, you look at college sports, including college football, you know, again and again, you see dramatic outbreaks. You know, the the University of Louisville just had to shut down everything for a week because like 30% of the athletes tested positive. You know, I can say our our staff remains committed to their care. As you can can imagine, it goes without saying that uh, I'm incredibly disappointed and frustrated today with what's occurred. Why? Uh, because they went to a party, apparently, after there was contact tracing done. Major League Baseball really functions almost day to day. Really, it's kind of every other day, every three days. You're wondering whether they're going to have to shut down the season for a while or shut it down for good. Because they they can't, on certain teams, get this under control. Good morning to you, Robin. You know, it took us four months to get the baseball season started in just a matter of days before a COVID-19 outbreak. Now, the Phillies and Marlins are in self-quarantine, both teams, and we are just three games into the Major League Baseball season. This is the worst-case scenario coming to life in the first weekend of the season. Let's remember, just a couple days ago, there were all the good feelings of opening day, and... And when the tests were done last night on the rest of the club, eight of them came back positive among the players. That is 40% of their roster. When you have teams such as the Florida Marlins and others with cases in the teens, all of a sudden that's very disruptive to the sports schedule. Right now, it's impossible to get through an entire week Unless you're in a bubble, which could be in Orlando or in outer space, for all we know, uh, in order to to make this happen. Right. And it's, you know, the NBA is like it's in complete contrast because they have zero cases. And I'm wondering, how are they doing that? Like, how have they gone in a completely different direction and been so successful? They basically have 
you know, sectioned off their athletes. They, they're tested every day. Uh, they have to wear bands that will buzz if you're within six feet of the next person. If you're not on the field of play, the testing is, is incredibly strict. They had to come down and they had to quarantine for 36, 48 hours. Even then, the, the amount of time that um, someone who's not on these teams are allowed to be, you know, even within six feet of the guys is extremely limited. Disney workers barely, barely see uh, the athletes. So they've created this uh, extraordinary atmosphere in which they've been able to wall themselves off from society. Other sports are are trying to make this work in a bubble too. Can you tell me a little bit about the other sports that are going with the bubble model? The NHL uh, decided to do it. You know, let's get away from the United States. We're going to Canada. Is your government willing to do what's needed to allow the Canadian cities to be part of the hub for the NHL to continue to play? And when will that decision be made? Um, uh, we have indicated that uh, we are uh, comfortable with moving forward on an NHL hub in one of three Canadian cities uh, open to it as long as it is okay by the local health authorities. Same thing, very strict protocols, both for the players and the coaches and the staff and for the media as well. So far, it, it's, it's working in the NHL and it's quite different and, and quite difficult to be socially distant in that sport. But th- there's still a, a, a common thread here that you have to make extraordinary efforts. You have to expend an extraordinary amount of money to have the availability and the testing to test your athletes daily. And you have to require a level of discipline from them that you can't get, quite honestly, from the rest of America. Yeah, and I also feel like it's worth mentioning that at these bubble games, there's literally no one in the stands. And, and I'm wondering what your insight is on how that's affecting the players and, and the games themselves and the people watching them. It's incredibly weird. In basketball, they're, they're showing virtual fans. In Major League Baseball, a, a lot of stadiums have, have cardboard cutouts of fans in the seats. And they're, they're trying to turn these fields of play into television studios, ultimately. The indoor sports do it a lot better for television. So all of that's interesting. From the athlete standpoint, when the whistle blows and it's time to play ball, they play ball. But there are some of them, and you can see in the stats, uh, some of them really can't get themselves going just yet, or there's been an extreme adjustment period and really being able to play and not have the energy of the crowd to play off of. You have to make your own energy. I think you see the quality of play, surprisingly, has been exceptionally high so far. That surprised me because for a lot of these leagues, you know, you look at the NBA and the NHL in particular, this would be their offseason. So their body clocks are off, and yet they're still rising to the occasion for now. You know, considering all the compromises, do you feel like sports is sports at this point? I don't feel like sports is sports, which is weird to say because 95% of sports is the same. I mean, you've got people competing as hard as they can, striving together, trying to win. And we, we get outcomes, we get results. You see frustration, you see the joy, all of those things. Yet there's so much around sports that we really haven't experienced in this lifetime 
And it really abolishes the notion that sports are this diversion. It's better to say that sports is a microcosm of society. This idea that you can create a bubble, it might work for two and a half months to finish the season during the novel coronavirus. However, uh, when it comes to society at large, that's impossible. You know, you're talking about human beings, not puppets, not robots that exist in real life. And to expect them during the most trying time of their lifetimes, suspend all that anxiety and all that concern and just focus on playing ball is a false notion. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. And now, one more thing. I was pulled over late at night by police officers, and I was addressed in, in such a way that made me uncomfortable. And it actually made me a little concerned, more than a little concerned. But when they noticed that I was wearing scrubs, it was almost like they saw me for the first time, and kind of their interaction with me changed. Arturo E. Holmes II is a black doctor living in Brooklyn, New York. He says he's choosing to wear scrubs no matter what. He recently wrote a piece for The Post about why that decision is a no-brainer. Since then, you know, I've noticed that, you know, when I go places, when I talk to people, when I do things with my scrubs on, people kind of address me or see me differently. People that I don't know. Even when I'm talking to other black people, I'm, there's no issue. I'm just a normal person. However, for some, I'm not exactly sure what they see, but without scrubs, you know, I'll be followed around by security in department stores. I'll be followed, you know, through neighborhoods. I'll be trailed by police without any reason, like all sorts of things like that. So I don't know if it's because, you know, my appearance without scrubs makes me seem like a threat or concerning or, or what. But at the end of the day, whether I have scrubs on or not, I'm the same person. And the entire article, the entire essay is about appreciating people as people, regardless of what they wear. You know, I have this motto from my mother, and it's kindness is free. And I I think that's an important motto, because if we approach every person with the intention of treating them as someone who actually enriches the lives of others, I think that... Perhaps some of the the discord that we face right now would be much less than it is. Arturo E. Holmes is a doctor living in Brooklyn, New York. You can find a link to his piece at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 